Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. All those that are not on vacation already. So it's June, it's vacation month, right? So people are going to be in and out this summer. And, um, but it's good to see you all here. We, uh, we kind of come through a fairly intense several weeks of, uh, it's hard to say, several weeks of um, messages on how to win uh, the battle for our minds. And so what we thought we'd do is take a few weeks here, and, and I'm not sure if we're going to lighten things up or not, but um, we're going to be in Ezekiel. Yeah, right? Everyone's like, man, I want to be in Ezekiel. Why can't we go to Ezekiel? Well, we are uh, for the next several weeks. Um, and so you can go ahead and turn to page 826. And, uh, but to get us going, what does, what does a brick, a bed, bread, and a barber have in common? Sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, right? <laughs> so, uh, no, it's actually going to be what we're going to talk about today as we work through these uh, first several chapters. Uh, and as you do, let me just give me a back. Let me just give you a backstory because this is important. When you're when you're dealing with the Old Testament, everything um, after Israel leaves uh, Egypt, everything after that actually refers back to that. So, I put up some information here. Some of you guys are, right now, you've already checked out because there's numbers and BC and there's words and you're like, okay, I'm done. Just kick back, relax, just listen to my melodious tones. Um, because for some of you, this is like, oh, look at that, history. Yeah. Anyways, so in 1446 BC, before Christ, God frees Israel from slavery in Egypt, right? Woo, way to go. God's awesome. Gets them out. While, or as they leave, God says, hey, I've done some awesome things for you. And so Israel, I'm offering to be your national God, the God that you serve. Every nation at that time served a God. Today we either serve government or we serve ourselves. But back then everything was religious and everybody had a God. And God saying, hey, listen, I will be, I, since I am the one true God, I will be your God. Do you want me to be your God? And Israel's like, you just did that. Sure, we'd love to have you as our God. Now, key point here, this was not God saving Israel, every Jewish person, spiritually. This was God saving them physically from slavery, offering to be their God, and then wanting to, through them, continue His eternal plan of saving mankind spiritually. So it's kind of a key point, because what happened is Israel's leadership over the years and all the way up until Jesus' day, what they were doing is they were saying, we are saved, we are, God, we are right with God, and so now we need to continue to do this law in order to stay right with God. And so unfortunately, they got it wrong, and they thought that they were all saved. It's not what God was saying at that point. God was saying, I want to be your God, I want to use you to accomplish my goals, and if you represent me right, I'm going to bless you because it'll accomplish his goals. But if you don't, if you disobey me, I'm going to discipline you. That's what he's talking about in Leviticus 26. And then he repeats it again in Deuteronomy uh, 28. And so, again, salvation has always been by faith. Back to Abraham. Um, God said, hey, I'm going to do this. Abraham believed him, put his trust in God, and God said, I'm going to make you righteous. I'm going to make you right with me because of your faith. So during their time, if you guys know the story, during their time in the wilderness, once they got into the land, 
And one of the reasons why they were wandering for 40 years because they didn't believe God. They didn't trust God. They didn't worship God in that sense. And so he had them wandering to get rid of that generation. A generation dies off. They go into the land. But ever since they got into the land, they continued to struggle to worship God, to trust God, to do life God's way. Jump ahead 500 years or so, a little more than 500 years. Israel is a nation, has got kings, and they take this massive downward spiral, or a step really downward, and they turn from God. They reject God. They say, no, we're going we're gonna to actually worship the gods of this world. And so in 931, Israel divides. Solomon was king. His son was supposed to be the successor. Some other guy comes in, and he says, no, I'm going to be a king. They have a civil war. They divide. The northern kingdom is called Israel. There's ten tribes. The southern kingdom is called Judah. There's two tribes there. They have Jerusalem as their capital. Israel has Samaria, the town of Samaria, or city of Samaria, as their capital. Then in 722, 200 or so years later, King Shalmaneser of Assyria, because of Israel's failure to represent God right, they disobeyed, they were misrepresenting God, God sends this nation because he said, listen, back in you know, 1446 B.C., he said that if you fail to follow me, if you fail to do what it is that I've called you to do to be the nation that's going to represent me, I will discipline you. And there's a bunch of different ways he's going to discipline them. Ultimately, if they can't get their act straight, he's going to bring nations from around them, the ones that they're going to choose to worship, and he's going to use them as his discipline tool to get Israel to return to him. He's going to make, they can say, hey, you want to, be, you want to follow their gods and let their gods protect you. And so hands off, because he's a loving God. He's not going to force himself. So, 722, Israel, the northern kingdom, was just terrible the entire time. And so they got taken out early. Uh, then Judah was, had some good kings and some bad kings. And so things, you know, God withheld his discipline to the, to the extent that he's going to. Uh, so in 609, Babylon defeats Judah. King Jehoiakim, who is the king at the time, he becomes a servant to um, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. And so he's there, he's ruling, but he's ruling because Nebuchadnezzar is letting him to do, do that. 606, three years later, he doesn't like that anymore, so he um, rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes back and he puts down a rebel, rebellion and he takes some of the Jews back to Babylon. That's when Daniel, as we know the prophet Daniel, that's when he was taken to Babylon. Daniel's in northern Babylon, which is present-day Iraq, by the way. And he's in northern Babylon, and he's actually a prophet, but he's in the government. So he's kind of a, a powerful guy. Some years later, another rebellion is, is put down uh, by the, the king Jehoiachin, who is Jehoiakim's son. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, you know, whatever. So, um, I got Harold, Hagen, I guess, you know, whatever. So, Another rebellion is put down. They deport more Jews. Ezekiel is in this one. He's a 25-year-old priest. All right, and so he is in this uh, group of people that are taken back to Babylon. He's going to be down in the southern portion, and he's going to be among the people. So Daniel in government, and at the same time, you've got uh, Ezekiel who is among the people, and we'll see that as we go through this. In 586, the prophecy that Ezekiel is giving in this uh, book that we're going to be looking at in 586, there's a final siege on, on Jerusalem. And this is the one that um, Ezekiel is going to be prophesying about and telling us 
about. So we got Ezekiel and Daniel prophesying in Babylon, while Jeremiah, who's been at it for about 35 years now, he's prophesying in, in Jerusalem. All right? In fact, Daniel talks about reading Jeremiah's writings, which is kind of a cool thing. But that's how those three guys are connected. The ladies who are going through the Old Testament, they're all like, Harold, we could have told you all that. Yeah, we got this all down. Anyways, so Ezekiel's in southern Babylon, again, present-day Iraq. He's unable to serve God as a priest because there's no temple, but God's got a plan for him. God's going to use him. He's obviously a righteous man. He's someone that God knows he can use. And so he's going to have um, Ezekiel be a prophet to the Jews who are in exile. So those that have been taken over the years, who happen to be down in southern uh, Iraq, Babylon gave them freedom. They could actually have their own lives, have their own businesses, and all that kind of stuff. They just couldn't rebel. Um, And so he was going to be with them, and he was going to be telling them about what was going to happen to Jerusalem because of Israel's sin against God. And so he starts out, chapter 1, with this incredible description of the presence of God. Now we know that God can't be seen, He's Spirit, but when God shows up, there's always something happening, right? And so we have this incredible, we're not going to read it, you can read it later, but we have this incredible description that He gives us. There's a a storm of wind and fire, and there's a bright light and and glowing metal. I mean, he's having a hard time describing what he's seeing because it's it's so awesome. There are four angels, and and they have four faces, and they have four wings each. They have hoofed feet, and they're glowing bronze. I mean, can you imagine this? You're standing out in southern Iraq, you know, just kind of chilling because, you know, you've got nothing to do because you're a priest and you don't have a temple. So you're kind of just hanging out with people, you know, and you see this coming down. The faces, those four faces, there was a human face, a lion face, a bull face, and an eagle. America! No, it's not talking about America. (laughs) Just just dial it down. America's not mentioned. Each angel had a wheel at their side. And so you get this, I tried looking up some of the pictures, but they're just so, I don't know, they're scary. Um, And so they, they look like chariot. They look like a chariot to him. Though the angels were the structure and the wheels were attached to him in some way. On the chariot, there was a person, uh, like, a person like shining metal and fire sitting on it. So this, it, it's like a human, but there's fire and there's metal, and it's, but it looks like it's sitting on a throne. And then there's this radiance of a, a rainbow that encircled this, this figure. And so as you read through this, and as I was reading through this week, you could tell Ezekiel's struggling to explain this awesome God that we have. And God shows up and like, whoa, this is just beyond me. I, I can't even fathom and give the words necessary to explain this awesome God. In fact, it's so awesome, he finds it difficult to stay standing. In fact, this is what, how it reads. Then he, talking about God, the one that's on the chariot, said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak to you. As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me. And I set and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. So he was just completely just in worship and blown away. And so God's Spirit literally had to give him power, the ability to stand up, which is interesting because in the New Testament, that's what the Holy Spirit's responsibility is for us to do, to stand up for God and to do what God wants us to do. But anyways, then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people. That word shows up. A bunch of times. Some of them we're going to read, some of them we won't be reading, but it's like seven or more times in the first five chapters. 
for rebellious people. And that word rebellious or the word people is goyim, and it actually is describing not Jewish people, but non-Jewish people. He's saying these people, these Jewish people are so rejecting me, it's as if they're not even Jewish anymore because they're so focused on worshiping the way the world says to worship. And so they've rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. So the individual people making choices together as a nation. Kind of like what happens in our nation. Individual people making choices for themselves that join together and it becomes a nation that doesn't follow after God. I'm sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they listen or not, they are a rebellious house. They will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. Neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. In other words, don't fear what I'm telling you to go do. Don't fear the people. I've got your back. All right? But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, because they are what? Rebellious. Right? So after 400 plus years at this time of rejecting God, worshiping and trusting other gods, being stubborn and hard-hearted, God's patience has run out. It's time to fulfill the discipline to, that he said he was going to do back in 1446 B.C., and to rein Israel back in and try to get them to see that you doing life your way has consequences, and I want you to return to me. That was the whole point. That's the whole point of discipline, by the way, right? Any kind of discipline is to move somebody from going in the wrong direction and get them back to going in the right direction. <laughs> and God says it's not going to be a bed of roses. It's going to be thistles and maybe even scorpions. And again, he's using this as, you know, not necessarily going to be thistles, not necessarily going to be thorns or scorpions, but it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be a joyous experience. And sometimes following God isn't fun. And it's not something that we necessarily want to do, but we need to be faithful. And so he was supposed to be faithful. So after he gets this assignment, then God then feeds him a scroll. You'll have to read it for yourself. I'm just going to summarize it. But he he says, hey, here's this scroll, and it says that God feeds him the scroll, and he ate it. And again, what, what's going on there? He didn't actually eat, uh, you know, papyrus. He, he was saying that he, that he was responsible to take in what God was saying for himself. This had to be first and foremost something that Ezekiel understood, that Ezekiel took for himself and understood for himself. But then he says this, he said, it tasted as sweet as honey to me. And, it, and isn't that a great description of how it is when we spend time with God and His Word? That there's this, you know, there's just a sweetness about it. It's, just, it's so encouraging. I, I got home last night and I was not in the best of moods. And, and I went out on the back porch and I had my little um, apple cider vinegar water and baking soda that I drink every night. And, uh, and, and I'm just sitting there and I just, I'm having a conversation with God. And just to have Him to be able to just kind of calm my heart remembering what God's Word says about who He is and what He's doing and why He's doing what He's doing. It's as sweet as honey, which I kind of needed because it was apple cider vinegar. Anyways, so then He tells him what Israel's response is going to be. And this is what He says. And He said to me, Son of man, 
Go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language. You're not going to some other people. You're going to your own people. You all speak the same language, but to the house of Israel. Nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language whose words you cannot understand. But I sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, which means and obey, since they are not willing to listen and obey me. Well, if I can listen to God, why would I listen to Ezekiel? Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Behold, I've made your face, this is so cool, I've made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, I've made your forehead. I live with that. That's always. I fell 20 feet when I was a carpenter. I fell 20 feet on my head. And it didn't knock me out. <laughs> Anyways, do not be afraid of them or be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house, right? So, so God's saying, listen, they're stubborn, they're obstinate, but I'm going to make you just as stubborn and just as obstinate, but accomplishing, you know, he's going to be faithful as opposed to them. Moreover, he said to them, Son of man, take into your heart all my words which I will speak to you and listen closely. Go to the exile. So he's bringing this message to those that he's among in southern Babylon. To the sons of your people and speak to them and tell them whether they listen or not. He says it again. Thus saith the Lord. So he's given this assignment. And though Israel will choose to not listen to Ezekiel, He's not to be afraid because he's going to be made by God, empowered by God to be just as stubborn, to be just as obstinate, but in the sense of following through, he's going to be determined to do life God's way and respond. So then this happens. Then the Spirit lifted me up and I heard a great rumbling sound behind me. What, what's happening? God's presence, presence is starting to move again. Blessed be the glory of the Lord in this place. That's what he's, he's it's this rumbling sound. And he's kind of hearing this phrase, blessed be the glory of the Lord in this place. And I heard the sound of the wings of the living beings touching one another and the sound of the wheels beside them, even a great rumbling sound. So the spirit lifted me up and took me away. And I went embittered in the rage of my spirit. What? And the, and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. Then I came to the exiles who lived beside the river Chebar at Tel Aviv. That's where, that's where he lived as well. So he's kind of being brought back to where all these people are kind of hanging out. Again, back in the day, they, they kind of all hang, hung out and in the marketplace and that kind of stuff. And I sat there seven days where they were living, causing consternation among them or, or between them. So here's the, the Spirit takes Ezekiel... And now he's, he's got this stern look on his face, right? He's got flint in his forehead. He's got the stern look on his face. He, he's sitting there, by the way, in silence. But it says that he's embittered in the rage of his spirit, and then he ca causes consternation, or there's consternation among him. So what's he talking about there? Number one, that, he's, that Ezekiel is emotionally distraught. This is a huge emotional burden for him to carry. Why? Because, number one, he's got to carry it. To a people who have sinned against God, and he knows their sin. He's been involved in their sin in that sense. He, he's seen it all around as a priest. He was trying to get people to come back to God, but that wasn't working. And, 
And so he's, he's distraught over it. He's emotionally worked up about it. These people have sinned against God. He's been wanting them to do it. But he's the one who's going to have to bring the message. And then they're going to reject him. So he's not emotionally happy about all this. This is a struggle. This is difficult for him. And this is causing consternation among them. I mean, think about it. How would you feel if, if anybody showed up at your house and sat down in your living room, was there for seven days, didn't say a word, and was like this the whole time? Because that's what's happening. He, he's, he's, he's emotionally worked up. He's not happy. He's, he's got this look of frustration on him. So it's going to cause consternation, right? It's going to, you're going to be appalled. You're going to be dismayed. You're going to be terrified. You're going to be horrified. This is Ezekiel. This is a guy they've known. They've, been, they've lived with this, around this guy. They were neighbors. And all of a sudden he shows up where they're sitting down and he is not saying a word. Hey, hey Zeke, what's going on, man? What, what's the problem? Not saying a word. Because he's not supposed to say anything unless God tells him to speak. And he's sitting there. And they're trying to figure out why is he sitting here? Why is he doing this? This is frustrating. This is scary. So here's one of their priests. He's out of work. He doesn't have anything to do. He's hanging out by them. Sitting stone-faced. Silent. Seven days. So he starts on a Monday and it's Sunday. Whatever. After seven days, God tells him that he's going to be... He's appointed as a watchman for Israel. In other words, he's going to be the one warning Israel of trouble that's coming down the pike. So he's getting him set up because he's going to be explaining about this final siege that's coming their way. And God says this, if you don't do this, if I tell you, if, if I say, tell them that what they're doing is wrong and that they're going to be disciplined for it, and you don't, those people who die, their deaths are on your hands. Yikes! He's supposed to bring a message to these people. But if he doesn't do it, God's saying, hey, listen, their deaths are on your hands. But God's not done with Ezekiel yet. There's still more instructions before he begins this assignment that he's been given. And so we read this. The hand of the Lord was on me there, and he said to me, get up, go out to the plain or to the valley, and there I will speak to you. So I got up, went out to the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord was standing there like the glory which I saw of the river Chebar, and I fell on my face. Just a little side note, I mentioned this to the serve class yesterday. Um, it's interesting in the scripture, when you read through the Bible, anytime someone's in the presence of God in worship, they fall on their face. Now, if you've ever watched TV with faith healers, which direction are people falling? Backwards. I'm not saying there's anything there. I'm just saying interesting. Just, you know, me making notes of things that happen in, in church and in Christianity. Anyways, so now this is the second time he's fallen on his face. The Spirit then entered me, <laughs> again, and made me stand on my feet. And he spoke with me and said to me, Go, shut yourself up in your house. As for you, son of man, they will put ropes on you and bind you with them so that you cannot go uh, go out among them. I'll explain that. There's some debate as to what God's saying there, what he means. Moreover, I'll make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth. 
So you, he's eating peanut butter, as I think it was happening, so that you will be mute and cannot be a man who rebukes them for their rebellious house. In other words, God's like, I don't want you saying anything. I want this coming from you. I'm going to shut you up until I say something. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth, and you will say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, He who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. And so he gets this instruction. He falls down in God's presence. He, he has the Holy Spirit lift him up so he can stand there because God wants to speak to him. He's told to go hold up in his house and then there's going to be ropes put on him. Now, the question is, is this literal or is this figurative? What, you know, who's going to be putting ropes on him? What's the rope thing and that kind of stuff? Again, these are prophetic things and so sometimes it's kind of, I'm not really sure. But, so... So here's how I view it, just from my studying what that is. And again, I'm not a scholar, but I've done some reading and studying on guys who are. And um, so I take this. I, I don't believe it's um, literal. And the reason for that is because there's no indication that the exiles, the Jewish exiles, were violent with uh, Ezekiel. Uh, they just didn't respond <laughs> at all. I mean, they didn't beat them up like the other prophets got. They didn't kill them like the other prophets got. They just sat there and were like, what in the world? This guy is out of his mind. And so this is probably more of a, a figurative in the sense that he's at his house and he's thinking about this responsibility that he has and bringing a message to God and the fact that Israel is going to reject him. He knows what rejection looks like because of the other prophets. No, no doubt he was actually watching Jeremiah prophesying getting beat up back in the day. And so he's getting all kind of worked up and that fear is tying him up. The ropes are fear that they, their response or lack of response, is going to cause him to be fearful and cause him not to want to leave the house. And so then the last thing God tells him is that throughout this assignment, he won't be able to speak unless God gives him the words to say. Which, by the way, may be wise for us. <laughs> Maybe oftentimes we shouldn't really speak unless we bring what God says in, in any given situation. And just a side note, you can write that down, free advice, take it for what it's worth. So, you think he's got it bad. Yes? No? You think he's got it bad? Well, just wait. <laughs> just wait what God has for him. Now, I'm not going to read all these verses. I'm going to try to take you through these verses as best I can and summarize them for you. He wants Ezekiel to act out what God's going to do to Jerusalem. All right, so this is what Ezekiel, this, by the way, is where the, um, the, the, uh, the bed and the bread and the beard and the, you know, barber, all that, what I said at the beginning, where all that comes into play. So we start with the brick. So this is Act 1. All right, so he's going to kind of set things up here. He's got this little play thing going. So act one, it's going to be the brick, this brick illustration. Now, the brick of that time was about two foot long, uh, about a foot wide, and about four inches thick, somewhere around there. All right, and so he's supposed to carve Jerusalem on this brick. Again, we're not really sure, is, you know, is it the skyline, is it, you know, whatever. Jerusalem is going to be on this brick. Then he's supposed to build a siege wall and a ramp and encircle it by battering rams or with battering rams and tents. So this is, you know, he's got, it's like H, 
uh, what's that called? Uh, HO train set, whatever. <laughs> you know, it's this, it's this little thing. This little, he's got little stick figures in there, and he's got these little battering rams. Then he's supposed to place an iron plate between him and the brick. And then he's supposed to stare at the brick through the iron plate. All right, so the plate's here. He's staring in that direction. Now, God's point here is that Babylon is going to siege or besiege Jerusalem. But it's God's doing. It's God's hand. And this is going to be the final time, by the way, because history will play out. Israel eventually is exiled. Daniel tells us as he's reading Jeremiah, he figures out the timing. They're going to start going back into the land. But for now, there's going to be this siege. But he's not sitting, staring. He's laying. So here's, yeah, here's a depiction of it. Now, this isn't quite accurate because what needs to be happening is that iron plate needs to be in front of his eyeballs and his arm needs to be outstretched towards like he's coming after Jerusalem. All right, so he's laying down. You can go to the next one. We have the bed illustration just because he's laying down. Now, God told him you're going to lay on your left side for 390 days. It's a long time. It's over a year, right? That's the number of years, technically, of Israel's sin against God. Then he's supposed to flip over on his right side, and he's supposed to lay there 40 days, and that basically is the years of Judah's sin. So the exiles are going, okay, this has to do with the fact that we've sinned against God. He's laying, facing the iron plate. His bare arm is out towards the brick. Because again, this is God who is sovereignly using Babylon to discipline Israel. And he's supposed to prophesy against it. He's supposed to be explaining as God gives him direction as to what he's doing and why he's doing it. Then there's going to be ropes placed on him. And that means Jerusalem won't be able to escape this. Now, how does the ropes get on him? don't know if he put them on. He says it's going to be put on you, so maybe God, I don't know. And so this illustrates Israel and Judah's sin, but also God's patience. If you add that up, it's like 430 years. Yeah, 430 years. And again, give or take, it's not supposed to be an exact, it's just that it's been a long time, and God has been patiently waiting for Israel, sending prophet after prophet after prophet, come back, come back, and they won't do it. And so he, he has him laying there on the ground. Now, he's not, um, just for clarification, scholars have kind of, he's not laying there never moving, all right? He's, we're going to be finding out that he's going to have to have some bread. So he's going to have to be making his bread. So there are periods of time where he's laying down, but there's also periods of time where he's going to be preparing food, for instance, which um, we're going to talk about here in a second. But, but imagine his neighbor's response. He's laying there. What are you doing? Why are you laying there? But he can't speak unless God gives him the words to speak. Whoa. What? You've been there for three months. You keep coming back and laying down here. Why? Well, he just flipped to his right side. No, well, you know, these people are these people are not thinking this is a great thing. They're probably giving him a hard time, ripping on him, calling him names, thinking he's a nut job. I mean, they probably thought the guy's lost his mind because of the heat of the sun, whatever. 
This is not an easy thing. This is kind of how people respond to us when we start sharing Christ with them at times. And then his situation gets worse. Because he's supposed to make some bread. He's supposed to make bread from wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. And God says, I want you to cook it over human feces. Ooh. Are you right? He's like... Lord, please, I have been faithful to you. I have been ceremoniously pure before you. I've never done anything like this, and this would make me impure. And God relented. Okay, you can use cow dung. Oh, 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 good. (laughs) Whoo, cow dung. Now, actually, this is used throughout the world, even today. Where there's not trees, they take cow dung, they mix it up with grass and hay, they let it dry out, and then they actually cook their food off of that. You cook away all the bad stuff and your body gets used to it anyways. It doesn't smell the greatest, but that's how they cook their food, even in some places today, because again, there's not any trees. And so he says, I want you to bake it, and I want you to eat only eight ounces of bread a day. Being Norwegian, that would be hard. We are into pastries and bread. All right. And then drink less than a quart of water a day. 430 days of this. He's going to have to be doing this. Now, this is going to illustrate the results of the siege on the food supply. And, and God says, you know, when this happens in Jerusalem, the people are going to sit there and stare at each other in horror. Because this is bad. But, they wanted to do life their way. They, wanted, they didn't want God involved. But can you imagine what Ezekiel would have looked, at, looked like at 430 days? I mean, he would have been skinnier than me. I mean, it's just, you know, right? Well, yeah. I mean, he probably was skinnier than me when he started. But it's, it's amazing what people will put up with when they don't want to do life God's way. Because again, this is the consequences they brought on themselves. This is them saying, we don't want God anymore. And so God's saying, okay, I'm not going to force myself on you. And then the last act, and that is the barber. He himself is his own barber. So after all that, when everything is said and done, after the 430 days, Ezekiel is supposed to cut his hair and his beard, and he's supposed to, he's supposed to weigh him, the hair, and he's supposed to divide it out into three equal parts. He said, take a third of it and burn it, That means a third of the people are going to die from plague or famine in Jerusalem. He said, slice a third of it with a sword. He's supposed to go around town just slicing up his hair. He's supposed to, I mean, this is so everyone sees what he's doing. A third of the people will fall by the sword. And then scatter a third in the wind. And he said, a third of the people are going to be taken and just spread to all the nations in the area. So, what in the world do we take as takeaways from all that? That's Ezekiel chapters 1 through 5. Thank you very much. But what are our takeaways? What, what do we pull from this? Well, the number one thing is this. Don't eat Ezekiel bread. It's out there. It's in the stores. I looked it up. There's pictures of it. Don't eat it. All right? Is everybody writing that down? <laughs> no, just, just kidding. First one. 
Our God is an awesome God. We think too little of our God. Our God is awesome. When He shows up, it's wow. When Christ returns, wow. I would, I would challenge you this week, take time to slowly read through Isaiah 6. Slowly read through Revelation 4. Because the description is very similar. When God shows up, it's, it's, it's wow. And so here's some thoughts from that. First of all, don't bring him down to your level. Don't create a God in your own image. That's what Israel kept on doing. God's holy. He's righteous. He doesn't put up with sin, obviously. In fact, he hates sin so much, which sounds weird, but loved us so much, he went to the cross for us. Because he doesn't want sin in our lives. The impact of sin on our lives. He hates it. He hates the destruction that it brings. When we say, I don't want to do life God's way, I want to do it my way. God says, okay. I'm going to let you do it your way. And those consequences, we destroy everything we touch. Because he loves us so much, he doesn't force himself on us. He's not going to make you follow him. That's not love, that's abuse. And sometimes he'll take drastic measures to get our attention. I think if we can see that from here, this is drastic. And Ezekiel, by the way, was, he was actually the one being faithful. <laughs> Yikes, to bring that message. Secondly, trust God and reject the world's way of living. See, Israel dabbled over the years. They, they dabbled in um, how the other nations were doing it. And again, don't get caught up in the fact, well, we don't have idols today. Yes, we do. We have idols. Anything that we put in place of God. Anything that when we decide I'm going to do life this way rather than God's way, we're making ourselves God. I mean, there's the ultimate idol. If we're taking somebody else's advice on it, we're making them the God of our lives. They misrepresented who God is. And that's why they are being disciplined. Because God wants, he wants people to know him. Not a false version of him, but the true version of him. And so they worship and trusted the world's way of living. Then, then they live like the nations around them. And so the question is, what do you worship? What takes the place of God in your life? What, what determines what you're going to do and what you're not going to do? You, somebody else, or God? Your life choices shows that. I mean, plain and simple. What you choose in your life shows whether you trust and worship God or you're trusting and worshiping something else, someone else. Third one. Feeling like Ezekiel in our world is normal. You know, I think we need to understand that. I don't know about you guys, but I, I read the news and, and I make the stupid mistake of scrolling through Facebook and I see everybody telling me what's bad about the world and what I should be concerned about and what new thing I should be worrying about and what I should be putting my energy in and what I should you know, boycott this and boycott that and this is a bad thing and this is a bad thing. We've got to understand as Christians, yeah, we should be feeling bad about this world. But that's not our purpose. It wasn't Ezekiel's purpose. 
He was. He was kind of worked up about it, and they should have been. Israel was messing up. Our nation is messing up. But we have to understand that God is using us to work out his eternal plans. And like God strengthened Ezekiel to do what he needed to do, he's going to strengthen us. He's going to give us, not that we should walk around with frowns on our faces, but he's going to give us the determination too to do what God has called us to do. Here's something, and I haven't really processed this. I'm going to throw this out at you guys, and you guys can try to maybe process it. But God said he would hold Ezekiel responsible if people died because he didn't share God's message. And so I looked at it, okay, Lord, is, I mean, is this an application for us today? So I guess I'm just throwing it out. What if I don't share the message of the gospel? Because that's what's, that's our message. Again, I'm just throwing it out there. Just You can smack that around at lunchtime, talk about it. And so then the last thing with that is that we need to represent him well and draw people to him for salvation. Again, that's our message. That's, that's what God has called us to do. No matter how fearful it might be, no matter how the people may respond to us, if they may reject us, we still do what God's called us to do, to bring the message of Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Um, go ahead and stand close in prayer.